wanted to be like. You say, well, it must have been a really mature church. It must have been a church that had proven itself over many years. No. In fact, it was only a few months old. In fact, it's the youngest church that is, a, that is addressed in all of the New Testament. And I picked this book because we are at a transitional point in the history of this church. Not just because we're moving into a new worship center, but because we are establishing new goals. Very tangible goals. These 1,220 seats on the floor expresses a goal. That balcony expresses a goal. The new land that we bought for parking expresses a goal. And our goal is not simply to fill these seats with people. It is to fill these seats with people whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to achieve those goals? You say, well, I guess we need to try new programs and do different things and incorporate fresh ideas. No. In fact, the answer has nothing to do with anything new. It has to do with something old. And the answer has nothing to do with anything different. It has to do with something very familiar. And it has nothing to do with anything complicated. It has to do with something simple. In fact, it's so simple that the youngest church in the New Testament modeled it for us. We need to get back to the basics. And we're going to see what those basics are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, Paul gives the salutation in verse 1. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, this is the first New Testament letter that Paul wrote. And he wrote it along with two others. One is Silvanus. That was his Roman name. You're more familiar with his Greek name, which is Silas. He was Paul's accomplice on his second missionary journey. He's the one who sang a duet with Paul in the prison at Philippi. The other is Timothy. Timothy was a young man who joined the missionary team midstream in the city of Lystra. And he is a young man who was very dear to the heart of Paul. On more than one occasion, he calls him my son. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 17. They came there right after they had been asked to leave the city of Philippi. They only stayed in Thessalonica for a little less than a month because Paul preached three messages on three Sabbath days in the synagogue, and they had heard enough. And so they incited a mob and ran them off. But in those few weeks before they left, Acts 17.4 says, some Jews believed along with a great multitude of Greeks. And so this predominantly Gentile church was established. And the missionaries went on to the city of Berea, and when the Jews in Thessalonica found out they were there, they went to Berea and ran them out of that town as well. And Paul went briefly to Athens, and then he went on to Corinth, and when he got to Corinth... He sat down and he wrote this letter to the church of the Thessalonians who were only a few months old in the Lord. And he gives them a dual address in verse 1. He says, you are Thessalonians, that is, you are from the city of Thessalonica, the capital city of Macedonia. But secondly, he says, you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of those two addresses, the latter is the more important doesn't really matter what your physical address is on this earth. What matters is whether you're in God and in Jesus Christ. 
You see, Christians are not simply people who have heard about God and trust Him. They are people who live in Him day by day. And then Paul gives them a greeting. Grace to you and peace. Those are the best blessings you can have this side of heaven. Grace is unmerited favor by which God takes us His enemies and makes us His children. And peace is the inner quietness that we experience because of grace. It's that which defies the crushing, crashing circumstances of life. Grace is the cause, peace is the effect. And then having given the salutation, Paul jumps into the letter in verse 2, and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Whenever Paul prayed, he mentioned the Thessalonians, which tells you something about Paul's prayer life. It wasn't simply focused on himself. It was focused on others. And the Thessalonians were easy to pray for because they were always in the praise column. Do you know people like that? Every time you think about them, your heart wells up in praise for them. Well, Paul was praising this entire church. And what did he have to praise and thank God for about this entire church? Well, he tells us in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Three reasons. You see what they are? Faith, love, hope. The three essential qualities of the Christian life. And who was their faith and love and hope in? Jesus Christ. These are the three qualities that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He says, now abide faith, hope, love. And I'd like you to notice something. The intangibles, faith, love, hope, produce tangibles, work, labor, steadfastness. And I want to suggest to you this morning that these are the basics that we need to get back to. A faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures. If we will have those three qualities as a church, we will have the foundation to be all that God has called us to be. The question is, if Paul were to visit our church today, could he say this about us? Could he say, I'm always giving thanks for all of you? Well, let's examine these three foundational qualities and see if they're part of our life. Because these three qualities really form the outline for this chapter. The work of faith is in verses 4 and 5. The labor of love is described in verses 6 to 9. And the steadfastness of hope is in verse 10. First of all, the work of faith in verses 4 and 5. Now, what is the work of faith? Well, he's not talking about any work that you do to gain your salvation. Because if you try to work for your salvation, you miss it. Because salvation is a gift. And so the work of faith is not the work I do to add to my faith. The work of faith is the work that faith does in me. The transformation that takes place in me. The fruit that comes out of me because of faith. And Paul tells us in verses 4 and 5 how he saw that in the lives of of the Thessalonians. Verse 4, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. Now Paul refers to them as brethren. That's his term for Christians. It's, a fond, it's one he's fond of because he uses it 21 times in First and Second Thessalonians. 
And he also refers to them as beloved by God. Now, everyone is loved by God. But when he uses this phrase, he's talking about those who are specially loved by God because they are his own, because they are his children. In fact, this is the term used of Jesus in Ephesians 1, 6, where it says, we are in the beloved. Now, what does Paul say about the brothers in Thessalonica in verse 4? Well, Paul says, I know that God has chosen you. Now, if we were writing this letter today, we would probably say, I know that you have chosen God. But when Paul looks at salvation, he doesn't just see it as a human choice. He sees it as a divine choice. And this is a doctrine of election. You say, well, I don't believe in election. Well, you don't have a choice because it's taught throughout the New Testament. Election is the concept that tells us that God could have selected your neighbor, but instead he chose you to be his child. And he made that choice before the foundation of the world. You see, you are not a Christian today because one day you found God. You are a Christian today because one day God found you. In fact, when he found most of us, we were running full speed in the opposite direction. God was just faster than us, and he caught up with us. You say, well, how does Paul know that God has chosen these Christians in Thessalonica. How does he know that they're believers? He was only with them a little less than a month. How does he know that? Well, he tells us in verse 5. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Paul says, When I preached the word to you, it wasn't just the word. You didn't just say, I hear you. You didn't just say, that makes a lot of sense. You didn't just say, that's interesting. It wasn't just a bunch of words. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying that we shouldn't use words. The gospel always comes in words. Some of us wish we could communicate it some other way, but we have to use words. It's hard to talk about Jesus if you don't open your mouth. But Paul is saying, when I came there and preached, it didn't just come to you in word only. How did it come? Well, he names four things. The first is power. You see that in verse 5? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Now, how did the gospel come to them in power? You say, well, maybe Paul performed miracles in their presence. That's possible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed before you with signs and wonders and miracles. It's very likely that when Paul came to the city of Thessalonica, he did some miracles. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's not saying, I know you're saved because I did some miracles. Paul did a lot of miracles that didn't cause people to believe. In fact, if he did miracles in Thessalonica, not only did the believers see the miracles, but the Jews saw the miracles, and what did they do? They ran him out of town. So what power is he talking about? Well, I think, think he's talking about the greatest evidence of God's power that there is. You know what that is? Paul calls it in Ephesians 1.19, the surpassing greatness of his power. And that power is resurrection power. In Ephesians chapter 1, he tells us that God demonstrated it when he raised Jesus from the dead. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he says God demonstrated it when he raised you and I from the dead, spiritually. 
And so he comes to Thessalonica and he said, and they, they heard the word and they didn't just say that's nice. They didn't just say that's a wonderful concept. They didn't respond like the people in Athens who laughed him off the stage. They believed. And Paul says, the way I saw that was by God's power taking you out of death into life, taking you out of darkness into light. This week I was in my office and a fellow stuck his head in. And he said, remember me? And I said, well, no. And he said, I'm Brian. And it all came back to me. Two years ago, I got a call from St. Francis Hospital to come and see Brian. He had been in an automobile accident, and he was paralyzed. And I came up, and, and Brian was lying flat on his back. The only things he could move was his mouth and his eyes. And he had tubes going down his throat and down his nose, and, and I couldn't understand anything he said. His mother had to interpret for me. And so I stood over his bed, and I shared the gospel with Brian. And with tears running down his eyes, he trusted Jesus Christ. And he said something to me, his mother interpreted, and his mother said, Brian said that he wants you to baptize him, but he wants to wait until he can walk. And I remember saying that would be great and walking out of the room and in my own humanness saying, not a chance. Well, a few weeks later, he walked into my office, and then the next Sunday, he walked down into the baptismal tank, and I baptized Brian. And he came to my office this week, walking as well as anybody in this room. And he said, I, I just came for my checkup at the hospital, and I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate you coming up. And I got to see his tears again this week as they ran down his eyes as he talked about how the Lord had saved him. See, that's the power of God not just because he was walking in physical health, but because he is walking in newness of life. He has been brought out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Second reason Paul says he knows is in verse 5 as well, and that is because of the Holy Spirit. You see, it wasn't the power of Paul's personality that impacted the Thessalonians. It wasn't the power of Paul's persuasiveness in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, he describes his preaching style this way. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul was weak, but the message came in power by the Holy Spirit. You see, we declare the message of, God, of the gospel, and then we stand back and we watch the Holy Spirit work. And that's why before we share the gospel, we pray, because the work of faith is all his work. And then a, fourth, or a third thing that Paul mentions in verse 5 is he says, it came with full conviction. And that word has the idea of assurance. They had the assurance of their salvation. Now, assurance comes two ways. One way it comes is internally. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We have the inner witness of the Spirit of God telling us that we are His children. But there's also a second way that it's confirmed, and that's outwardly. That's by the fruit that He bears in our lives. You say, well, Paul was only in this city for a little over three weeks. How could he see any fruit? What fruit did he see? Well, look down at verse 9. He says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned away from the things that they had been serving to the Lord. You see, that is genuine 
repentance. Their whole lifestyle was transformed. You know, it was in the city of Thessalonica that the Jews there said, those men who have turned the world upside down have come here. You know why they said that about Paul? Because they saw him, by his preaching, turning the lives of the Thessalonians upside down. They were doing a complete 180 in repentance, away from idolatry to the Lord. And then he points out a fourth reason that he knew, and that is because of his clear example at the end of verse 5. It says, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The gospel didn't just come to the Thessalonians in word only. It came by example. Paul didn't just preach it. He lived it. Now, that's where a lot of us fail. A lot of us don't open our mouths because we know that people know what kind of people we really are. And a lot of us contradict the message by our lifestyle because people hear what we say and then they say, we know better. But you see, Paul was a living illustration of the message he proclaimed. And so he could be thankful about the believers in Thessalonia because of their work of faith. They received the word in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction and with a clear example. And then the second basic Christian quality is the labor of love. And we see that in verses 6 to 9. Now, if we listen to Hollywood's concept of love, it's all about emotional goosebumps. It's all feelings, whoa, feelings. I can do better. You get the impression it's like a pothole that you fall into and then you you get out of and you move on. That's Hollywood's love. But biblical love is not simply emotional love. It is always active. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this. How? That He laid down His life for us. And the Thessalonians had the kind of love that Paul could get excited about and be thankful for because it was active love. Here it says, They labored. They broke a sweat. Now what kind of things were they doing? Well, he mentions four things in verses 6 to 9. First of all, they pursued godliness. Verse 6, You also became imitators of us, and of the Lord. They didn't say with the commercial, I want to be like Mike. They said, I want to be like Paul and Silas and Timothy, and most of all, I want to be like the Lord. Now, what did they see in these missionaries that they wanted to emulate? Well, look at chapter 2 and verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. They saw godly characteristics. They were devout, they were upright, they were blameless, and they labored in love to emulate those same qualities. Who are you imitating? Who's your hero? Who do you want to be like? Michael Jordan? Mark McGuire? Tiger Woods? Or is it someone who's seeking to walk faithfully with God? Is it someone who is living out what they believe? You see, the Thessalonians labored in love to imitate godly people. And then the second way they labored in love is that they rejoiced in tribulations at the end of verse 6. It says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
when Paul came to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, he stirred up a big mob scene and then he left. Guess who caught the wrath of the mob? The new believers. And it wasn't just the Jewish mob that brought them tribulation. We find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14 that they were also enduring the same kinds of sufferings at the hands of the Gentiles. And so they were experiencing much tribulation. How did they handle it? They rejoiced. You know, as a church, we don't know much about this kind of tribulation. We say, well, we don't have our video projectors and our screens. We don't have our pulpit. Woe is us. This church was going through real tribulation. People were hating them. People wanted to drive them out of town. How did they rejoice in the midst of that kind of tribulation? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 6, he says it's the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's his joy in me. And his joy supersedes circumstances. And then the third thing he points out that showed that they labored in love is that they reached out to the world in verses 7 and 8. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. In Thessalonica, Paul was accused of turning the world upside down. Now he writes back to the believers there and he says what? Essentially, you have turned the world upside down. He says in verse 8, the, the phrase that really means they are sounding forth the word like a trumpet. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that would be all of Greece, but also, he says, in every place, that would be all the Roman Empire. Paul says, every time we go somewhere, they're talking about the church at Thessalonica. And we don't even have to bring you up. Now, how much do you have to know to be an effective witness for the Lord? Well, this church had only been in existence for a few months. They obviously didn't know a whole lot but they did know that Jesus Christ had changed their lives. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you know enough to proclaim it. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you know enough to turn the world upside down. And how did the Thessalonians sound forth the word in every place? Simple answer. One place at a time. One person at a time. Have you sounded forth the word across the fence to your neighbor? Have you sounded forth the word across the office to your fellow employee? Have you sounded forth the word across the desk to your schoolmate? You see, if each one of us just reached out to one person, this place would be full. We would have to finish the balcony. And not simply would we be filling this place, we would be populating the kingdom of God. You see, that is the labor of love. And then the fourth way they showed the labor of love is that they served God in verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They had turned from dead gods to the living God. They had turned from false gods to the true God. And what is the evidence that they turned? They served. Let me ask you something very personal today. What are you doing right now in the way of serving the Lord? 
You say, well, I come to church. Well, that's not serving. That's being served. You, you, you come in here and you're sitting down to a spiritual meal, and I take the spoon and I say, open up, here it comes. And, and you're fed spiritually. Coming to church is not serving. Now, you can serve when you come to church. If you minister to people and reach out to people and do those things, but coming is not serving. What are you doing in service to the Lord? You know, somebody told me this week that we're in need of Sunday school teachers for the summer. We need teachers for vacation Bible school. We need a children's coordinator on Wednesday night. We need help in the nursery. We have a whole lot of places to serve. And everybody in this church ought to have a list of things that you are doing to serve God. That is the labor of love. The Thessalonian Christians did that. They pursued godliness. They rejoiced in tribulation. They reached out to the world, and they served God. And then the third basic Christian quality is the steadfastness of hope. And we see that in verse 10. What was the hope that enabled these believers to stand fast? Look at verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the hope of every believer. In fact, did you know of all the doctrines in the New Testament, this is the most frequently mentioned. I read this week that the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned on average every 13 verses in the New Testament. In fact, it concludes every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. Now, the Thessalonians didn't have a whole big defined concept of the future, but they were certain that two things were going to happen. Number one, wrath was coming, and number two, Jesus was coming. Two things were coming, God's wrath and God's Son. And they were waiting for God's Son because He had paid the penalty for their wrath. He had been buried and He rose again. And they had turned from their idols to God. They were serving God and they were waiting in anticipation for Jesus to split the eastern sky. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your ship to come in? Are you waiting until we get a new president so we can have peace on earth? Are you waiting for Y2K to wipe out the known world? You know, I know some Christians that are getting more ready for Y2K than they are for Jesus. Heard about a little girl who heard the message on the second coming, and she went home and she said, Mom, did I understand this right? Does this mean that Jesus could come back this year? And her mom said, Yeah. Well, could, could Jesus come back today? Yeah. Could Jesus come back this very minute? Yes. She said, well, then, could you comb my hair? You see, if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, it will affect your present. We need to get ready for him. These people were focused on the fact that Jesus was coming, and they knew it could happen any minute, and it affected the way they lived their lives. Till the Lord comes back, we've got some big goals as a church body. How are we going to fulfill them? By going back to the basics. We need to have a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures.